come on a journey with a cinephile. episode number 15 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always i am your tour guide david garrett jr and on this episode i am semi-dubbing this as my parents double feature as i will have featured reviews of come to daddy as well as prevenge and i have five mini reviews for you this week of tales of halloween teeth edge of sanity House from 2008, and The Creeping Flesh. So what I'm going to go ahead and do here is get you over to a musical break to start us off before I get into those mini-reviews. I hope you enjoy.
And for my first mini-review of this week, it is Tales of Halloween from 2015. This is an anthology film, so I'm going to list off all of the directors, which is Darren Lynn Bowsman, Axel Carolyn, Adam Giersch, Andrew Cache, Neil Marshall, Lucky McKee, Mike Mendez, Dave Parker, Ryan Schifrin, John Skip, Paul Sola, and then for the writers, it is created by Axel Carolyn, and then some of the segments were written by Dave Parker, Clint Sears, Greg Commons, Axel Carolyn, Lucky McKee, Molly Millions, Billy Jackson, John Skip, Andrew Cache, Mike Mendez, Dave Parker, again, Ryan Schifrin, and Neil Marshall. The three main stars are Adrian Barbeau, Hunter Schmidt, and Cameron Easton. This is a comedy horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being 10 stories are woven together by their shared theme of Halloween night in an American suburb where ghouls, imps, aliens, and axe murderers appear for one night only to terrorize unsuspecting residents. Now, this is one that I was familiar with from a few different podcasts that had covered it, one of which I know for a fact was the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror, as well as Shockwaves podcast. Now, the latter actually features one of the hosts, Rebecca McKendry, who is in the movie along with her daughter. And I remember hearing stories, so I added this to a list of movies to check out and finally got around to it. Now, just to kind of give you some brief overview here, this movie starts off with some voiceover from our radio DJ of Adrian Barbeau. Now, I'm pretty sure this is paying homage to the fact that she was in John Carpenter's The Fog, where she was also a radio DJ there. Now, she's talking over the opening credits, which introduce us briefly to all the stories, which if you've ever seen a Bond movie, it's kind of something along those lines where you're getting just little hints of what's going to be featured in each of the shorts, and we get a little animation of what to expect as well. Now, the first story is called Sweet Tooth. This is where we have Mikey, who is portrayed by Daniel DiMaggio. As he's plowing through his candy, his babysitter, Lizzie, who is Madison Iceman, tells him to slow down. And then her boyfriend, Kyle, who is Austin Falk, tells a story to try to scare him, where we have Timothy Blake, who is Cameron Easton, who has the strict parents of carolyn williams and robert rustler who let him go trick-or-treating but never eat the candy well one halloween he sees that they're eating it and decides to punish them and this creates the urban legend entity that comes out each halloween who is looking for candy and the name of that is of course sweet tooth now kyle doesn't reveal that it's just a story but it actually might be just more of them than that now i do think this is an interesting story to kick us off with i like the concept for this boogeyman type creature but it does become a bit problematic and i think my problem here much like most of the shorts in this movie, is we don't really get why it visits the house. And I think that might be because these being a short, they don't necessarily flesh it out as much as they can and having 10 stories. They do kind of cut some of these that I think need a little bit more explanation than what we get. And so my problem then also becomes is that there's not really a way to summon it. Gore did look good, and I thought the acting was pretty solid across the board. And this is more of a you know cautionary tale of not taking something that isn't yours and being punished for it. The second story is The Night Billy Raised Hell. We have a boy who is, of course, Billy, portrayed by Marcus Eckert, who is out trick-or-treating with his sister, who is Brittany, portrayed by Natalie Castillo, and her boyfriend, Todd, Ben Stillwell. Todd tells Billy about time that he pulls a prank on his neighbor who hates Halloween, and he's bullied by the two to throw an egg at the house of Mr. Abaddon, 
who is portrayed hilariously by Barry Botswick. His neighbor comes out before he can do that and takes Billy under his wing to have a night of raising hell, literally. Now, I thought this had a pretty cool concept. The ending of this one is a bit weak for me, though, and I also didn't really care for the reveal as it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense with the age that Billy is at and thinking that some of the things that could be done here. And I will say that the acting's fine, but none of it really stood out. I did like how they make Mr. Abaddon and Mordecai, who is Christoph Zakikdenik, look pretty cool. So I do give props there. I just think this is another one that really needed to have more time to be completely fleshed out. And there is an interesting cameo as well by the model Adrian Curry. And then next we have Trick, which gives us James, portrayed by John F. Beach, Maria, Tiffany Shepish, Caitlin, Casey Rigari, and Nelson, who is Tret Haga, are watching Night of the Living Dead while they're giving out candy to trick-or-treaters. Things take a turn, though, when one of them is stabbed by a girl in a witch's outfit. There's a reason that this is being done and a secret hidden in the workshop out back. Now, I'm not going to lie. This one frustrated me a bit. I, again, thought this has an interesting concept, but the problem is that it isn't fleshed out. I think this becomes an issue where we have 10 short stories, like I said earlier, and some of them are fine as quick hitters, while some of these need a bit more. I was stoked, though, to see Shepish, as I'm a big fan of her. This one is also the one that is featuring McKendry along with her daughter. And I also like to see that Haga is a director who I've seen a few of his films. So seeing him as an actor here, I thought was cool. I thought the effects we got here were good. And this is still one of my favorites, despite the issues that I have with it. I just, you know, kind of want a little bit more. The next short is The Grim Grinning Ghost, where we have Lynn Shea telling a story to her daughter, who is Lynn, portrayed by Alex Esso along with the lovely Barbara Crampton, Lisa Marie, Mick Garris, and Stuart Gordon. And the story that she's telling it about is named Mary Bailey. She was unattractive and now follows people around. If they turn to look at her, she will kill them. Now, Lynn scares pretty easy, but humors her mother for Halloween. As she goes home, though, her car breaks down and she thinks that she's being followed. And she tries to do what her mother said, though, but it is hard with curiosity. This one, I think, works pretty well at its length, though, even though I've said that, you know, the ones prior to this didn't necessarily. We establish this entity, and then that Lynn is followed by it. I like that it builds tension by making us wonder if she will ever look back, or if there's even something actually following her, if it's just her imagination. I absolutely love the cast, especially Esso, Shay, and Crampton. It is fun to see the Masters of Horror Garrison Gordon making their appearance as well. The entity looked pretty creepy as well, and this one is pretty solid in my opinion. The next short is Ding Dong. In this story, we have Jack, who is Mark Center, who is married to Bobby, portrayed by Pollyanna McIntosh. She is having a breakdown about Halloween as a tough time as she doesn't have children, and we see that she's harboring a terrible secret. The following year, she comes up with a plan to impress the children. That involves the fable of Hansel and Gretel. She learns a secret, though, that could send her over the edge. Now, there are times when you can really pick up on a director and their style. I knew without looking that this was the one done by McKee. Part of it is using Macintosh in the lead role, but there's something that just felt like his previous films as well. I thought this has a pretty creepy imagery. It doesn't actually go as far as I would have liked it to, though. And there's some things that are left unsplaying that I think we just need a little bit more of. And I will say that I did feel uneasy with what we did get still, and the effects were solid overall. We then get The Weak and the Wicked. There's a guy who is sitting down to eat his Halloween candy, and then he's bullied by Alice portrayed by Gracie Gillum, Isaac, who is Boo Boo Stewart, and Bart, who is Noah Segan. 
Before they can really hurt this person, a stranger, who is Kier Gilchrist, from the past intervenes. He's chased to a place where something from the past happened and the revenge on his mind of this stranger. This is another one that I think we needed to be fleshed out a bit more. I like that the lore that we get introduced with, which comes at first, appears that the stranger is actually a demon. I like that the things that we see correlate back to something that we see at the start. The backstory is established pretty well. It is just kind of the things that happened so quickly that I was a bit lost. This does have a surreal feel, which I did like, and I do think the missing information contributes there as well. Now, the acting I thought was good, as were the effects. As for the next one, we have This Means War. This has Boris, who is Dana Gould. As he is setting up his annual Halloween decorations, across the street is Dante, who is portrayed by James Duvall, along with his girlfriend Velma, who is Alessa Dowling. He is going for the more extreme presentation, and this upsets his neighbor, who confronts him on Halloween night. This was a short that I actually thought was perfect length and fully fleshed out. I feel like this has an interesting look at horror from the past to what we get today. It really has a classic feel that Boris is going for, and I could say that this would probably be more like the Universal and Hammer horror, while Dante we has more of the modern with the blood and guts and things of that nature, as well as, you know, metal music going on with it. I like that this has the causes the two of them to get into it while crowd cheers them on. This one is really one of the more fun shorts in the whole movie. That will move me to the next one, which is Friday the 31st. This is a fun short where we have a deformed mass serial killer who is portrayed by Nick Precipice. As he's following after Dorothy, who is Amanda Moyer, she hides inside of a barn where she discovers many of this killer's victims. The killer is then visited by something that is both cute and more powerful, which leads to an interesting showdown. Yeah, this one is definitely fun. The killer does look a lot like Jason Voorhees, and the effects that we get here are pretty good especially how they make the killer look. I thought Dorothy was pretty attractive. The thing that we meet that really becomes the crux of what is going on here is a, is being done with what I'm assuming is stop motion. I have a soft spot for that, and there's also some CGI with what happens with her as well as some of the effects later on. I didn't mind it. I think the story is a perfect length with the story they're working with, and the effects just kind of make it you know more comical. Then I will go to The Ransom of Rusty Rex, there are two men that are in a van that are Hank, who is Sam Whitwer, and Dutch, who is Jose Pablo Quintillo. They're bank robbers, and they've decided on a new venture. They have been staking out this millionaire, who is Jebediah Rex, portrayed by John Landis. The plan is to kidnap his son, Rusty, who is Ben Wolf. When they get the child to their hideout, though, they're in for something more than they're ready for. This is another one that I like the concept, and with what ends up being like the creature that Rusty is, actually. Thought the acting was good, including having the Master of Horror Landis in his cameo. The look of Rusty was pretty solid along with the rest of the effects. There's a fun reveal as the bank robbers realize what is actually going on here. This is another one that I think was a perfect length and doesn't outstay its welcome. And then the final story we have is The Bad Seed. This story starts with Ray Bishop, portrayed by Greg McLean, who is carving a pumpkin into his masterpiece. Things then take a turn when the jack-o'-lantern comes to life and attacks him. His wife, Ellen, portrayed by Serena Vincent, comes in as it is happening. The detective in charge of the investigation is McNally, portrayed by Christina Klebb. She thinks that they're messing with her and trying to tell her that it is done by the pumpkin. When Bob, Pat Healy, the forensic guy, shows up with the mold of what actually bit this man's head off, she goes out to prevent it from making more victims and learning what is causing it. Thought this was another one that was quite intriguing. I think this could be fleshed out a bit more as well, but it's a short that does give us enough 
of a backstory that I wasn't overly bothered this time. The acting was solid from having people like Kleb, Healy, McLean, and Vincent, along with having some cool cameos from Adam Green, Graham Skipper, and Joe Dante. The effects I do believe are mostly CGI here, but I thought they looked really good. The ending was pretty interesting with implications as well. Now, just to kind of wrap this up, something that does slightly hurt this is the lack of a wraparound. Technically, they're going back to Barbeau periodically in what they're doing, but if you know me, I do like something a bit more with the wraparound. This doesn't ruin it, but this is something I just wanted to point out. So I would say overall, this is just slightly over average, and my rating for this film is going to be a 6 out of 10. And for our next mini-review for this week, it'll be Teeth from 2007. This is written and directed by Mitchell Lichtenstein. It stars Jess Wexler, John Hensley, and Josh Pias. This is a comedy fantasy horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. With the snuffs being still a stranger to her own body, a high school student discovers she has a physical advantage when she becomes the object of male violence. I actually kind of saw this film for the first time when I was in college. I know one of my roommates at my first apartment brought this home, and we kind of as a house watched it, but I'm not really sure if I sat down and started it from beginning to end. And I know for a fact, though, I did watch it with my ex, as she had heard good things about it, and we decided to check it out together since... I was kind of unsure of my first viewing. With me being a horror fan as well, I was always down to ensure that, you know, I, you know, fully saw it. But my last viewing here would be with the Fright Club podcast as they do their monthly series at the Gateway Film Center. So I got to see this on the big screen. And to kind of give it some background information is we start this off in a nice neighborhood where there are some nuclear power plant silos in the background. We have a father of Bill who is Lenny von dolan and a mother of kim who is vivian benshi now they're not married at the moment but they are into each other and he has a son who is brad who at the as a child is hunter uvlog and kim has a daughter who is dawn played by at this time ava ryan plum the two of them are sitting in a kiddie pool brad doesn't want them to get married and he has exposed himself to dawn and tells her it's her turn now, when he, wants, when he goes to put his hand down there, we hear a scream, and then we see his finger has been bit pretty bad by something. Jumping this into what is present day of the movie, Dawn is now Wexler, and she's given a talk about abstinence. While she is, there's a boy in the crowd that catches her eye, and we soon learn his name is Toby, and he's portrayed by Hale Appleman. While she is hanging out with her two friends, Gwen, who is Lila, Liliana, Garo, and then her boyfriend, Phil, who is Adam Wagner, now, Toby shows up as he's friends with Phil, and they kind of get to know each other. Then at home, Dawn lives still with her mother and now her stepfather, and her stepbrother has grown up to be portrayed by Hensley, and there's kind of a weird dynamic where he seems to be into her. And what ends up happening in this is Dawn realizes that she has a extremely rare and really only talked about in mythology of vagina dentata where she has you know teeth down below the belt that she at first is unable to control but the more and more that things that happen to her that are pretty horrific she starts to realize that she can use this to her advantage now i do have to say i have mixed feelings about this film i think there's a powerful message here that the writer director lichtenstein is trying to convey as a male, I can completely understand if I get some things wrong and I apologize if I do, 
but here are some of my thoughts from the things that we get here. I do really like the empowerment of women that we get. Dawn is naive, which is fine. She's still in high school and hasn't experienced the world yet. It is when she's faced with Toby, a boy she finds attractive, that her animal nature takes over. She can't control it, and it is something that is bothering her due to the vow that she took. I feel bad the things that she has to deal with because she shouldn't have to. I do think the movie goes a bit overboard with it. It does make sense, though, as a movie that is also part comedy would. And I also like there's some really good references here to mythology, like I was saying, from many cultures, actually. It does bring up Medusa from Greek mythology. And there's also a movie that is showing where we're seeing that depicted on film as well. Now, one of the podcast hosts from last night brought this up and brought up the fact that Medusa is made into a Gorgon through rape that she has no control over. That is a really good mirror of what we get in this movie. This also is something that is coming from sexism that is built into a lot of the myths as well. She thinks that she needs to be conquered, quote-unquote, by a, a quote-unquote hero in order to overcome what she has at this time thinks is wrong with her. When it is actually much more like her teacher stated that she has spontaneously evolved. Now, it's a bit heavy-handed here, as I feel like they're trying to state that living as close to the nuclear power plant that they do is the cause of this. And I wouldn't be surprised if that's the reason they're showing the 1950s sci-fi film The Black Scorpion, which I'm pretty sure that creature was as large as it is due to radiation. They're just kind of tweaking that a bit for this movie. And as I've said, I think they go a bit heavy-handed with the imagery as well. There's a hollowed-out tree that looks similar to a vagina or swimming in a, to a forbidden cave. Plus, the mouth of the cave has rock formations that don't look that different from the images of the vagina dentata. These don't ruin the film, but it take me out of it a little bit when you go that heavy and I feel like the comedy was thrown in to make this easier to handle for men as I personally would like to have seen this played a little bit more straightforward personally I will say that it's paced pretty well I like that we get this interesting opening sequence before switching to Dawn in the present she is tested from many males throughout the film and it really isn't until she is violated by Toby that she becomes a monster this then puts her down the dark path that she goes to of sexual exploration. As I've said though, I like the empowering aspects here. It is good to see that for sure, and I like where this ends up. This is really a cautionary tale to males, and I'm completely fine with that. As for the acting, I wasn't the biggest fan if I'm gonna be honest. I think that Wexler is great. I've seen her in a couple things since this, and we see the beginning of her talents here. I think when she starts in this movie and then ends up is great, even though I feel bad that how she gets there. Now, there are some moments where she does overact, but I think that's more of how things are written and not necessarily on her performance. Hensley, I thought, was just odd with how he's written as well. It doesn't make sense for him to still be a virgin in the way that he is with how his character is portrayed. I don't mind that he's in love with his stepsister, but I just feel like it's a little bit off with how it's handled. The other good actor here is Pius, who is a gynecologist of Dr. Godfrey. I thought he was fine. Appleman, Dolan, Benshi, Springer, and Garo are all fine, but I think some of the issues, as I've said already, is from the writing and not necessarily their performances, but I do think they round out what is needed for the movie. Now, something I did find to be interesting were the effects. They really do well in hiding them, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. There's an interesting conversation where the textbooks in school, while they're in sexual ed, shows pictures of the penis but not the vagina as there's these stickers over it 
I think that was Liechtenstein pretty much telling us that he couldn't show the actual teeth that Don has. But we do get some really good practical effects like the blood and the severed wangs, which both made me cringe and actually looked pretty real if I'm going to be honest. And I just think the cinematography is pretty well done overall. Another thing that I didn't care for in this movie was the soundtrack. I thought it was out of place at times, and it was pretty noticeable where I can, you know, tell you that. Because normally I don't really notice it or I end up loving it, but this one just didn't sit well. The only thing that really seemed to work were a couple scenes with most of those with Brad and they're using his metal music to kind of portray his character. Now with that said, I do like the messages that this movie is trying to convey. There are things that my girlfriend shares with me about, you know, living daily life as a woman and things that they have to, she has to deal with, which makes me sad and shocked. So seeing a movie like this, I can connect with the things that I've heard. I like the empowering of this character, but is a tough with what she goes through to get there. It is a bit on the nose at times with some of the things though. And I think they could have went a little more subtle there. And I think the effects were good and it is paced in a way where I never got bored. The acting is subpar aside from Wexler and the soundtrack didn't really work for me for the most part. I would have to say I rate this just slightly above average. I have my issues with it, but I do think there are still some good things and would say at least give this a viewing once if you haven't. So my rating here is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. All right, and for my next featured review, I had writer-director Rick Gordon reach out to me to review a award-winning short film that he made called The Wake. This is from 2017. It stars Liam Burke, Finlay Cormack, and Joseph Murphy. This is from Ireland. The rating on IMDb is a 6.2. Now, I was intrigued when I was reached out to by Gordon to check this out, as I saw that it was from Ireland, and it seemed to be involving some lore that I don't know a whole lot about. And as always, I'm always down to help out independent artists when it comes to, you know, work. So this starts off with a couple as they're heading out to the middle of nowhere, Driving is Peter, who is Cormac, and he's with his girlfriend, Claire, who is portrayed by Kathleen Bridget Murphy. Now, they arrive somewhere, and we get an interesting scene where he goes to hold her hand and she pulls away. The two of them go inside, where Peter notices that a mirror is covered with a sheet and that a clock on the mantle below has stopped. Peter then meets Jack, who is Burke, who takes him into the kitchen and starts to feed him drinks. Being that this is in Ireland, it seems to be that... That is the custom. He starts to feel funny and then ends up passing out. He then wakes up and everything in the house is gone. He goes back into the room where the body was in and things take a pretty dark turn, much like the synopsis states. Now I'll admit, when I was watching this, I got the feel of something like the hole in the ground as I know they had something in that movie with covering his mirrors as well. I also believe that this film is from Ireland, so it does make sense that there would be somewhat similar mythology. Now this one's a little bit different from that as to what I think this movie has in it. Being that I'm from the United States, it does intrigue me to see the reasons are and learning more about the lore from this country. Going from that, this movie has some pretty creepy things in it. I don't want to spoil anything as I'd rather have you watch it and you know kind of see it for yourself, but everything that we saw isn't always as it seems. It really makes sense as the things progress as well. I'll include here that the effects were pretty creepy for Uncle Eugene, who is Joseph Murphy. I like what they did with him, and it looked good for sure. There did seem to be a bit of CGI at the very end, and it was very brief, so it was nothing that really ruins anything. Everything else, though, seemed to be done practical. This runs just shy of about 10 minutes, 
And I would say that if they wanted to flesh this out a bit more and give us more backstory, that would be something that I would watch for sure. As it sits though, I think this has a good setup, a solid reveal and twist into the ending that I can get down with, as it is also reminiscent of something that I do enjoy in movies as well, but again, something I don't want to necessarily delve into and spoil. I thought the acting was pretty solid. I like that Cormac is being a good boyfriend and coming out to awake for someone that he's never met in his life in support of his girlfriend. Murphy does well, and I like the reason as to why she's being cold towards him and how her character ends up. Burke brings a bit of being nice along with creepiness to his role, which I dug. Murphy, Roma, Tomutley, and the rest of the cast also rounds us out for what was needed. Now with that said, I thought this was a pretty solid short film. It works well within its time frame to build an interesting setup and solid reveal to an ending that I can get down with. The acting is good in bringing these characters to life. I like the effects that we got as well as the hints of the mythology that are there as well. If anything, I would be fine with this being extended out a bit more to explain some of these customs. Being that our main character Peter isn't from there, it does make sense as we're as lost as he is being outsiders. The soundtrack fit for what was needed, I had no issues there, and I would rate this as good, and it had me intrigued to check out more from Gordon. So my rating here is going to be an 8 out of 10. And for the next movie is Edge of Sanity. This came out in 1989. This was directed by Gerard Kikinion, and it is written by PJ Felix and Ron Rayleigh. It stars Anthony Perkins. Gilness Barber and Sarah Moore Thorpe. This is a horror thriller in a co-production from the United Kingdom and Hungary. It is currently sitting on a 5.3 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, when Henry Jekyll, who is Perkins, experiments have gotten out of control, he transforms into the hideous Jack Hyde, also played by Perkins. As Hyde searches the London streets at night, he allows his wildest fantasies to play out. Now this was a movie that I had acquired some time ago, which I believe was right around the time that I got out of college, and I was seeking out the different adaptations for The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from the story from Robert Louis Stevenson. I've actually owned this one for quite some time on DVD, but it's probably been a full decade after I acquired it before I finally have watched this. And I came in pretty blind aside from knowing that it borrowed elements, and I was actually shocked to see that Perkins was starring in this. And just to kind of give a brief background information this one's a little bit different in Perkins is a doctor who is also a teacher and we see that he is working with cocaine to use it as a anesthesia which is an interesting scene that made me cringe a little bit when he's using this to do an treatment on somebody's eye and it shows that he is able to do this with the person not moving because if he did it could cause the person to go blind with since he's using a pretty sharp object well one night he's going to do an experiment with a monkey that he has in his possession, but the problem is this monkey gets agitated from the cocaine that he has fed and knocks over a beaker of chemicals that falls into a bowl of cocaine, and it creates a smoke that Jekyll goes to make sure it isn't getting out of control and inhales a bunch of it, and this is the change that comes over him. Now, at first he doesn't have a name for this different version of himself, but he ends up naming it Jack Hyde, as he goes about starting to kill prostitutes and living out some of his more wildest fantasies. And that's where the killer Jack the Ripper comes from, according to this movie. And I should also point it out that he is tormented by a prostitute from his youth, who is Thorpe. And then he's married to Elizabeth, who is portrayed by Barber. Now, as I've let off stating previously, if you've read any of my reviews or heard some of these, I've seen 
a ton of adaptations of Dracula and Frankenstein, and now I'm trying to work my way through the Dr. and Jekyll and Mr. Hyde ones. Now, this is a quite the interesting take on it, as I've already kind of alluded to a bit. Now, at this time, I've seen probably five or so, and I do like this does some fresh takes on things, but does, you know, kind of use some other things as well that we've seen prior. And the first thing here is that this is an interesting look at addiction. Dr. Jekyll is doing experiments while on cocaine, as well as doing experiments on cocaine, and ends up taking too much by accident. This changes him into Jack Hyde who acts out on his fantasies without repercussions or worry. I think this is an interesting look at those that commit crimes or just do bad things while they're high. It makes sense that it comes out in the late 80s where we are seeing much more of that in society in modern times. And it, it, this movie is looking at it allegorically, you know, in the past. He really can't control himself. And then it gets to the point where he's, it's taking over his life, which again, much like addiction, he also has mood swings and does what he can at times to try to stop himself, but much like the original story, this is consuming him as well. Going from there, we also have something that I first noticed in Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, but this film changes the name of Hyde from Edward to Jack, and then, of course, what I was bringing up with the other film is he is committing the crimes of Jack the Ripper. I have to give slightly less credit here as this came out after that other movie, and it's a little bit too on the nose by changing the name to Jack for Mr. Hyde. And I do like the idea better in Sister Hyde that is a woman committing those crimes, not a male. Regardless, I like this being made into a crossover as it does deepen the story. Now, despite this movie having only a runtime of 85 minutes, I did feel that there is some slight pacing issues. I was surprised when I looked it up to see that this is under an hour and a half as it does feel a little bit longer. I didn't want to say that I got bored because that's not the case. It does keep my attention, but it does drag a bit at the start of the third act. I'm thinking that by making this about addiction, it becomes slightly problematic as we don't really get Dr. Jekyll being faced with his own mortality like we do in the story, where a lot of times it's normally he likes to become Mr. Hyde, but then is fearful that it's taking over his life. We don't get that here. He's actually embracing it, and it seems to be enjoyment is what he's feeling. The only time that we really shows any sort of remorse is when he's faced with his wife wanting to leave him, which I think is pragmatic for the era. I could be wrong there, but you don't really hear anything about wives divorcing their husbands. Like I said, I could be wrong on that, but I do love that he does act like a drug addict towards her, and the bleakness of the ending and where they took it, I wasn't expecting, and I did like that. Now, something else I'm surprised as well here is I did have some problems with the acting, this is a role for Perkins that isn't that much different from him in Psycho or its sequel, as those are the only two that I've seen so far. He's older, and I love the duality of his character, as well as his fall from grace as he gives himself over to the addiction. My problem that we're having is that this is in Victoria, England, and his accent didn't work for me. I don't buy him as somebody from that era or country. I thought Barbara, though, was solid as his wife. I like that he's torn between her and Thorpe, the prostitute that, as I've said, haunted him as a child. It is a really good versus evil there, and the idea of temptation and letting go. The rest of the cast I thought was fine in rounding this out for what was needed, as nobody really stood out. I did have a slight issue with the effects. I thought the blood that we got looked good. There is a throat slit where we see the practical effect was used. Now, I thought that was fine, but we can tell that that's not really a wound. It's just a prosthetic on the prostitute's neck. Plus, there wasn't any really blood coming from it, where a wound like that would be bleeding you know, quite a bit probably spurting with how they showed it. I did feel seeing the after effects of the attacks were good and fit to pretty much what I've 
read about in regards to the actual Jack the Ripper killings. I like the different looks that we get from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde. His face is always in kind of a snarl and the skin is very pale once he's, you know, high and let giving over to that. And then the last thing is I thought the cinematography was fine and it was shot pretty well overall. Now with that said, I thought this was an interesting take on this story. I don't mind the changes that were made as so many adaptations are out there. You really have to do something different. Making the change more akin to addiction I thought was good as well as seeing Dr. Jekyll give himself over to it. I thought the difference in look from Jekyll to Hyde was distinct enough and the performance there was good. I did have a slight issue with the effects as well as I don't buy Perkins being from this era. The rest of the acting was fine, especially Barber and Thorpe. I did lose slight interest later on in this movie, but I will say that the ending did pull me back in. The soundtrack didn't really stand out, and I had no issues with it, though. Overall, I would say this is above average, and I'm coming in with a 7 out of 10. Alright, that'll take me next to House from 2008. This is directed by Robbie Henson. It comes from a screenplay by Rob Green, and a novel from Ted Decker and Frank Peretti. This is a horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.6 on IMDb and a 2.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being in rural Alabama. Two couples find themselves in a fight for survival, running from a maniac known as the Tin Man, who is bent on killing them. They flee deep into the woods and seek refuge in a house. Now, the first thing I should say is that this synopsis isn't necessarily how things play out, just so you're aware. But I'm not really sure how I got turned on to this movie. I think it's been on my Netflix list probably around the time that it came out. And it had been sitting there pretty much until recently. So close to a decade before I finally got it. And I came in pretty blind just to check this out. But what we end up having here is a couple of Jack Singleton, who is Rinaldo Rosales. And I realize I never said who starred in this, which is Rinaldo Rosales, Heidi... Dippold and Michael Madsen but going back to what I was saying is that we have Rosales and Dippold who are Jack and Stephanie as they're in a car together we get from here that there is a tumultuous relationship between them and he's a, a thriller writer which we learn later on and she's an aspiring singer he's driving a bit fast and she's bothered by it a cop comes up from behind them and speeds past but it does make them feel uneasy while he's there and and in the almost rear end, that same cop and the couple has to get out of the vehicle where Jack notices that there's a cone that he has driven over. And as he's taking that out, the officer ends up being played by Michael Madsen and he wants to see Jack's license. He produces it while Stephanie turns on the charm. They're let off with a warning and sent on their way. We do learn that they're on their way to a marriage counseling session, but they have a decision to make is if they're going to go on to that, which would be in Birmingham or take the road that Madsen gave them that'll get them back to the highway, which they take the ladder, and end up running over some old farm equipment, puncturing two of their tires. And then they end up coming to a nearby house, which we got to see in the cold open. And it is there that they meet another couple who is Leslie Taylor, portrayed by Julianne Emery, and Randy Messer, who is J.P. Davis. While they're at this place, they are faced with some of their past traumas and have to try to survive the night as somebody named the Tin Man shows up and gives them three rules that in this house he has killed God, he will kill anyone else in this house, and the only way he'll let the second rule slide is if he's given a body by sunrise. Now, I do think this movie has some interesting aspects that get revealed throughout, and I'm almost thinking a lot of this is that it does come off of a novel, so there is some deeper story here that they're working with. 
And I do think the movie does really well in establishing these characters. But on top of that, each of the characters really do have kind of some deeper backstory. And then it actually makes how they act now make more sense as we learn more about that. And I would actually say, I never got bored while watching this either. The movie has a runtime of about 88 minutes, and I think that's perfect. Anything longer, I think it would get repetitive, as we do get it balanced out pretty well between learning these backstories and seeing them as everything plays out. And then while I was watching this, I was going to complain that we don't really learn enough about this house and some of the things that is found inside of it. But as the reveal finally happens, it makes sense as to everything that I had issues with, and it does get explained enough for me. I don't necessarily like all of the aspects of the ending, but I'm fine with what they're going for. And it, I mean, I'll admit it's pretty rare to find a movie where everything completely works for you, in my opinion. As for the acting, I thought Rosales and Dippold are solid as our two stars. They play off each other well. And I like that we at first, we really get what they're that they're a broken married couple and that things seem like they can't be fixed and they're going to go through the motions of, you know, trying. As we learn about the past traumas that they're dealing with, I like the changes that come over in their characters, much in the same way as Emery and Davis. As you see what happens to them, though, it is pretty much the opposite, and I think that fits their characters with what they've done in their past and what they're doing now. And I do think it's pretty interesting here to have such strong actors of Michael Madsen, Lou Temple, Leslie Easterbrook, and Bill Mosley, who's also in this, as the people that are in support of them. Because I think that really rounds out for what is needed, as well as some of the other minor characters that we get in this movie as well. The only thing that would be kind of problematic is that this takes place in Alabama, and nobody's accent really is that great outside of maybe Temple. So I do think it's kind of odd that, I'm assuming this is from the novel, but keeping it in that way just didn't necessarily work, personally. For the effects department, there's not really a lot that I can remember. I do know there is quite a bit of CGI smoke. I wasn't actually bothered by it, if I'm going to be honest. There was something at the end, though, that I didn't really care for, and that's part of the reason why I have issues with the ending. This goes on for most of that sequence, though, as well. I will warn you there. I will say, though, that the cinematography I thought was solid and had no issues with that. And now with that said, this was a surprising movie that I hadn't heard anything about. Coming in blind like I did, I think I actually liked it more than I was expecting to. It really doesn't introduce anything overly new, but I thought how it's given to us is fine. I like the backstory and how the characters are developed from there. The progression as they're faced with things in this house really does help. I do think the title of this movie is a negative against it, since there is obviously the classic movie of the same name from the 80s. The acting is solid. There's not really a lot in the way of effects. I do think, aside from what we get during the ending sequence, the rest of them were pretty solid. The soundtrack really didn't stand out, but it also doesn't hurt the movie. Overall, I would say this is slightly above average and would recommend giving this a viewing to see what you think. So my rating here is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. And for my final mini review of this week, I watched The Creeping Flesh from 1973. This is directed by Freddie Francis. This is written by Peter Spensley and Jonathan Rumbold. It stars Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Lorna Heilbronn. This is a horror sci-fi film from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a Victorian age scientist returns to London with his paleontological bag of bones discovery from Papua New Guinea 
Unfortunately, when exposed to water, flesh returns to the bones, unleashed malevolent being on the scientist's family and friends. Now, I'll be honest, this is a movie that I had never heard of until I was reading through an encyclopedia of horror films. I was intrigued to check this one out as I saw that it starred Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. There was a ch cheap Blu-ray that featured this along with two other films, so I decided to pick that up to give this a viewing. And to kind of just give this background to build upon the synopsis is we have Emmanuel Hildren, who is Cushing, as he returns back to his estate as the synopsis states from Papua New Guinea. He is studying prehistoric man and has made an important discovery. Now he returns home to his daughter Penelope, who is Hilbron, along with his assistant Waterlow, who is George Benson, as well as his housekeeper Emily, who is Catherine Finn. Now Penelope is excited to see her father and wants to have breakfast with him. He agrees, but he first gets caught up with his work a little bit. And his discovery is that he has found a humanoid being that is much more advanced than the Neanderthal, but it is older than the Neanderthal and this kind of breaks what science has said about discoveries. And what I find this to be interesting though is that there are thoughts that there was a humanoid figure that was around the same time as the Neanderthal. So what they're establishing here in this movie isn't that much different. But what ends up happening though is he has a run-in with his, his half-brother who is James who works at a mental institution nearby and in his frustration, he comes home and starts to clean off the skeleton that he brought and sees that the water actually brings flesh back to the skeleton. And that's where he starts to do his research from. Now, one of my favorite things about this, when I started to delve into older films, was my love of Cushing and Lee. I had seen both in just random horror movies here and there, but it was really when I got into the likes of something like Hammer Horror that I really just saw how talented both of these guys actually are. This movie does feature both, and I enjoy seeing them work off of each other. And then since I've already gone down that path, the rest of the acting is pretty solid as well. I really enjoy the inquisitive nature of Penelope and with what Hilbron brings to this performance. Since Emmanuel won't speak about her mother, and this makes her want to learn more, which makes it even that forbidden nature of humanity. Now, the first thing is I feel that there are some self-fulfilling prophecies here. Emmanuel doesn't want to talk about his wife to Penelope. As I said, this makes her want to learn more, which, as I said, is forbidden. Emmanuel is afraid that she is going to be afflicted with the same mental illness, but it seems like he might cause it in her with an experiment, which is interesting. It made me wonder if he didn't do some of the things that he does, would she still end up acting how she does, as she does seem to be kind of losing it as things go on. And I've already kind of established what I was going to bring up next as well, is that in finding the skeleton of a humanoid that is older than the Neanderthal, as I've said, at the time I believe when this came out, that other type of humanoid hadn't, that was more advanced and was around at the same time, hadn't been discovered. So I do like that they're establishing this even before science could, you know, prove that this is correct. And I also believe that the Neanderthal was thought to, is now thought to be an evolutionary line that went extinct. The problem I got with this movie though is that I think they focus on things from this being that wasn't as interesting though and the movie does get a bit stagnant because of it i was intrigued though with the myth that emmanuel reads to waterlow and how it plays into the movie you know later on during the climax going along with that issue with what they focused on there's a large section in the later second act that i didn't really find all that interesting penelope goes to town which from what i kind of gathered is the first time 
At first I thought she was going to be a bit more aggressive while she was there, as she was a sheltered child. Now we do get some of that, but I think it should have went harder with her being as wild as almost like an adult child who is being tempted. I get what they're trying to do here, but it doesn't work with what happens leading up to it. There's also a subplot with an escaped mental patient that she encounters, but I don't really see what the point of that was or how it kind of really deepens the story. Aside from that the cops are looking for him, so there's much more of a police presence. The events that lead to the ending though were good, and I don't necessarily like what they do with the ending. Oh, my issue with that is that in modern times with films, that whole concept is played out. I can't fault this movie though, as it is probably one of the ones that started it, and it was done during the time period when this was kind of a new way of doing things. As for the effects, I thought the growing flesh on the bone was good. I'm assuming that they're either using stop motion or they are playing the film backwards. Either way, I thought this was an interesting practical way of doing that. The creature at the end looks fine. I did want a bit more from it though. Since this takes place in the Victorian era, I thought that they made it look pretty realistic. There was one moment where a net gets slit. The effect looked good, but there's a lacking in blood. With the era that this came out, they should have either hit it better or just used a bit more blood and then cut away. I will say that the cinematography was good, especially with the point of view from the creature that we get later in the movie. Now with that said, I thought this movie introduced some interesting concepts, but instead of following the ones that would make this more entertaining, they got kind of lost in their way. It is a shame that we have these two heavyweight actors that turn in good performances from Lee and Cushing. In support of them, I thought Hilbron did good, and the rest of the cast did as well. With the story they're trying to tell, it lost me in the latter part of the second act. I will say that aside from a couple spots, the effects were fine, the soundtrack really didn't stand out to me, but it fit for what was needed for sure. Overall, I would say this is just slightly over average for me. There are a few things I think they could have done that would have made this better, but since they didn't know, I can't really go much higher than that rating. So I'm going to come in with this movie as a 6 out of 10. And now what I'm going to go ahead and do is send us over to the trailer for the first of my featured reviews. Yeah, it's me, Norp. I got your letter. I never thought I'd see you again. For how long has it been? A long time. A long time, yeah. I realize I know nothing about you. Boy, your mom really doesn't talk about me, does she? Oh, really? Mom, hey, it's Dad. He's he's not how I imagined him. He's not used to having people around. Dad, why did you ask me to come here? I don't want to discuss it. I need to know why you sent that letter. I gotta take a crap. I know what's happening. You got no idea what's happening here. I could see the king. Ever been in a fight? 
I once kicked the guy's ear off. I got this theory. Bad guys have eyes that look like razors. You have to kill him? I'm not a murderer. You just killed somebody like Metatron. Who knows? Maybe we'll end up being best friends. Come here! Come to daddy! Okay, and for my first featured review of this week, I have the newly released Come to Daddy. This is directed by Ant Timpson, who also came up with the idea for this movie. And the story, as well as the screenplay, were written by Toby Harvard. This stars Elijah Wood, Stephen McHattie, and Garfield Wilson. This is a comedy horror thriller, and this is a co-production from Ireland, Canada, New Zealand, and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a man in his 30s travels to a remote cabin to reconnect with his estranged father. Now, this is a movie that I knew was coming out and was quite excited for. From just a few things that I had heard, Wood and McHattie are two actors that I've been quite impressed with pretty much everything that I've ever seen them in. And when I knew this was coming to the Gateway Film Center, I made a point to see it. I didn't know if they were going to show the movie into the week. So I ended up going on a Sunday when I had just gotten back from Cleveland and was pretty tired, but I wanted to make sure that I didn't miss this. And it's also interesting that I got to hear an interview from the director, Timpson, on the Shockwaves podcast before. So I got a little bit of more background information on this movie with nothing being spoiled, but just kind of some ideas. So I thought that was pretty cool as well. Now, we start this with Norvell Greenwood, who is Elijah Wood, as he's getting off a bus in the middle of nowhere. He has a letter with directions on where to go, and this directs him to go through the woods, which was kind of some cool scenery to get here, to find an interesting house that is overlooking the water. He knocks at the door to find Gordon, who is Mick Hattie. They embrace as their father and son and haven't seen each other in a long time, as the synopsis stated. But the relationship is awkward, which... If you've not been with somebody that long, I can understand how it would be. And just some of the background information we get through their interactions is that Norvell is a recovering alcoholic and Gordon is still a full-blown one. Due to the years apart, they, as I'm saying, feel each other out as neither knows anything about the other. This makes us quite of a tense interaction that we get as Gordon doesn't respect his son and Norvell is trying to impress him and there's just something off about gordon as well things take a turn though when something happens as this causes norvell to descend into madness as he tries to find out the truth of what is going on here things are much darker than they realized about his father and things that he thought he knew might not necessarily be the case now i wanted to go a little bit lighter on the recap here as this film doesn't have the most complex story and a lot of things to go over would actually be in the latter half of the film, which would involve me going into spoilers, which I'm going to do after I kind of give my recap of this movie. Now, in the interview that I heard, this movie came from an experience where the director, Timpson, who is from New Zealand, sat with his father after he passed away. He said it felt odd as he was having people come in that he had never met, telling him things about his father that he never knew. So this movie is a bit more extreme than that and where things lead. But I thought it was an interesting premise that we got. This movie is really driven by the acting, for sure. Woods and McHattie are great in this first part of the movie as they play off each other so well. Both are just so good at becoming the character that they're playing. We do get a lot more of a cast as things go on, and I thought that they were all pretty solid as well. Now, the real villain here 
is also solid, and he is a character named Jethro, who was portrayed by Michael Smiley. I do think they really do round this movie out for what was needed. As for the pacing, I thought it was good. We get a normal runtime of just over 90 minutes, and I think that works. The first half hour is establishing these two characters. We then get an event that sends, as I said, Norville spiraling. And then we get these reveals that lead us to an interesting ending. It is oddly uplifting, despite everything that has happened. What I also like here is that this is part comedy, but much more of a dark one. I don't think that it ruins the movie, which a lot of people know for like the comedy aspects do tend to kind of turn me off at times. The jokes here are pretty horrible, and with my sense of humor, I can appreciate that. I would put this more in akin to like a Killer Joe type movie, if you've ever seen that. To shift over to the effects, they all seem to be done mostly practical from what I could tell, and if there was any CGI, it looked really real to me. This movie does get quite brutal with what happens, and I can really appreciate that. The blood looks good, and seeing how violent this gets. The cinematography was also well done, as I had no issues there. The last thing to cover would be the soundtrack, and I'm trying to think back to it now, and I'm actually drawing a blank. I do remember that it worked, and oddly enough, telling myself that I thought it did work while the movie was going on, and I do think that it worked for what they were going for as well. The use of sound was also pretty solid. There are some noises that are driving Norville mad, and I really thought that worked, especially when you find out the reveal of that. Overall, I would say that on the whole, this was pretty solid for what was needed, but not a soundtrack that I would necessarily visit often. Now with that said, I did really enjoy this movie. It went in a direction that I wasn't expecting, and the premise behind that and where they came up with the story is interesting. This is a brutal film that kept my interest, and I like how everything plays out. The acting was strong, and it doesn't outstay its welcome as a movie. The effects did look realistic, with them mostly being practical. The soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out, but I had no issues there. The use of sounds throughout the house, though, was quite effective. I would say that this movie is above average overall. This might be one that I would revisit again before the year ends as well, just to kind of see if this can actually be a contender for my top 10. So my rating here is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Now what I'm gonna go ahead and do is take us over to a spoiler section. I will always have this time coded for you. So if you don't wanna hear those before you go see the movie, you can do that. Or if you don't care, you can just you know go right on through. But I'm gonna go ahead and start the spoilers here. The big reveal here is that the noises that draw Norville to a false wall in his hallway he finds a photo album to discover that the man that he thought was his dad isn't really his dad. The noises he's been hearing are actually his real father, David, who is portrayed by Martin Donovan, who's been locked in a secret room. He goes down there to talk with him, and David wants Norval to kill the men who put him there. It turns out, though, that his father is actually a bad guy. When he left Norval and his mother, David fled to Thailand, and there, him and his best friends were thieves and they had kidnapped somebody who was quite rich's child and then ransomed it and then in turn david had robbed jethro big man named dandy who is portrayed by simon chin as well as gordon norville is an artist who's grown up in beverly hills and he never really put together that his mother never really worked as it turns out that his life has been completely funded by the money that his father stole this is a pretty interesting reveal as to the truth of you know everything you know that you grow up with is actually a lie so Norville really has to decide to save his father who's a bad man or just walk away but the problem is that Jethro has found his luggage that has the tag that reveals where he lives so this helps the change that Norville has to have to come over him to decide what to do 
which is quite interesting because Gordon is calling out Norville for being a pussy and kind of pushing him to, you know, be a man, calling him out on stories that aren't true, things of this nature. And then on top of that, we have David who wants Norville to kill these bad men and save him, but he just doesn't have that inside of him. And it really comes to his mother possibly being killed as well as, you know, living a life in fear. So he has to decide if he's going to, I guess, put an end to these guys or if he's just kind of being killed himself, which I thought was a pretty solid kind of idea that you need to have in building the character in the end. And I also think there's an interesting scene here where Norval reveals that he attempted suicide while he was drunk, which is why he no longer drinks and actually shows the scars who he thought at the time was his father. There's an interesting parallel here as... I believe it is revealed that one of the other men had a child who did try to kill himself in a very similar fashion. I don't know if this was just something that was relayed from David to these men and that's where kind of that whole thought process comes from, but it was something that I did find to be quite intriguing. And one of the also stories that Norville drops is that he is a personal friend of some of these famous rappers as well as Elton John. And it's quite interesting that Gordon is actually calling his bluff on it. And this is mostly just done to belittle him. But just something that I thought was quite intriguing for the story as well. And this all coming from the fact that Timpson was sitting at what we call similar to like a wake. Where he's learning things about his father. Which I think is kind of broken up into both characters for this movie here. But just something that I thought was pretty cool overall. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is put an end to my review here for Come to Daddy. I would recommend this one to genre fans as well as horror fans overall. But I'm going to go ahead and get us over to the trailer for the next featured review. I'm really sorry about your loss and I know it's been very difficult for you. At the end of the day, you've got this force of nature now inside you. Baby knows what to do. Baby will tell you what to do. It's just nature's way. I think nature's a bit of an arse, though, don't you? You're getting better at this. I'm not in control. Don't want to know what's in there. I'm scared of her. I would swap her to have him back. If you can't hear you, she can't. She's very articulate. Kill him, or I'll kill you. Do you want a drink? If it's fun, you're after. You've come to the right place. I'm on the dark side. You would not believe what I've been doing recently. Oh! Very efficient with that one. I was wondering if I could talk to you about child charity. You're insane. I am a working mother. Children these days are really spoiled. Like, Mummy, I want a PlayStation. Mummy, I want you to kill that man. <laughs> Negativity's not good for the baby's spirit, really. Do you think? Okay, and for my second featured review is going to be Prevenge from 2016. This is written, directed, and stars Alice Lowe. And also starring with her is Dan Renton Skinner and Joe Hartley. 
This is a comedy, drama, fantasy, horror, thriller from the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, Widow Ruth, who is Lowell, is seven months pregnant when, believing herself to be guided by her unborn baby, she embarks on a homicidal rampage, dispatching anyone who stands in her way. Now, this is a movie that I pretty much heard about when I got into listening to podcasts. This is one that was an early Shutter exclusive that I am now just getting around to see. I decided to move it up my list of things to watch for this podcast here, as I wanted to do another movie that was directed by a woman, so in this case, Lowell, for Women's Appreciation Month for February. And then, of course, on top of the fact that she wrote and started this one, I felt this would be a solid film to, you know, cover here. And kind of what the synopsis was saying, we start off with Ruth, who is going into a pet shop where she's met by the owner, who is Mr. Zabek, and he is portrayed by Skinner. He's showing her around, and she states that she's looking for something for her child, and she wants it to be something special. He takes her into the back where she ends up slitting his throat. Ruth then goes to see a midwife, who is Hartley, where we get to see an interesting interaction. She's trying to connect with Ruth, but she just isn't really having it, and it appears that she is dealing with some deep depression. Father of her child passed away in a climbing accident, and the midwife reveals that Ruth might be having some thoughts that are different from when she, you know, is not pregnant. Now, this leads Ruth to allude that she thinks her baby is talking to her and actually telling her to do things. Now, throughout this movie, we will actually get the baby talking to her and kind of telling her what to do. And at first, they kind of seem to be on the same side. But the deeper that Ruth kind of goes, the you know worse the things that she's being told to do. Going from there, we see Ruth as she goes shopping for some clothes and she picks out a fancy outfit. We then see she's in the back of a car and she has a flyer for a 70s night that is hosted by DJ Dan, who ends up being portrayed by Tom Davis. Now she comes on to him and buys him some drinks before they end up on the dance floor together. Now he's a real jerk, but regardless, she ends up going home with him. Things get a bit weird, which includes meeting his mother before she ends up killing him as well. Now she's on a mission as hunting certain people down, including the man that she holds responsible for her ex's death. Now that guy is Tom, who is portrayed by Kaven Novak. Her baby, as I said, continues to tell her things, and it makes us wonder, is she really hearing these things, and are they really happening, or is she just going crazy due to her grief and the hormones from pregnancy? Now the first thing I want to lead off here is that, if you haven't already gathered, I give all the credit in the world to Lo. She wrote, directed, and starred in this movie while she was legitimately pregnant. And from some of the things that I end up looking up, she wrote this film in three and a half days. And she came up with the premise when she was very pregnant and no one would hire her for any other roles, which kind of makes sense. But it's also, I kind of feel sorry for her as an actress and a comedian that it would be tough not being able to work. And also found out that she was also eight months pregnant during the duration of this filming. And I also bring this up because I think of some of the excuses I use to avoid doing things in my daily life. So to see her work as hard as she did, it's unreal. And I give her, again, all the credit for what she accomplished with this movie. Now, as for the story, I think that this introduces us to an interesting concept. I like that it sets the tone through that opening murder before giving us a look into Ruth's life. It then shifts to the midwife where we're given the explanation of what is actually going on in this movie. I think that's something that was pretty good for the backstory, but it's also secondary as to why she's doing these murders. It took me until the end to connect as to we're given the hints as to why these people are targeted, which I will have a slight spoiler section at the very end of this to kind of explain it a little more, but it does make a whole lot of sense the more you kind of see as things play out. 
I do think it's interesting. And the twists through a major conversation between Ruth and Tom also kind of help build that as well. Now, I will admit, I do find the story to be a bit problematic, though. I do think a woman could possibly get away with one or two of these killings. Eventually, though, she's going to be discovered as any detective worth his salt will probably be able to see the correlation. Movie does kind of end before we get there, and that's not really a spoiler. She does kind of have an argument for temporary insanity, though. I do think this has an interesting little ending, though, but it is somewhat ruined for me with a horror cliche that they have at the end of it. I do feel the pacing is off a bit as well. It starts off strong. It had me hooked, trying to figure out what was going on. I even think that there's an interesting duality of seeing Ruth as she's communicating with her baby and how she's enjoying it. These killings are making her feel better, but the duality I speak of is that the midwife who wants to help her is trying to give her the facts, which could help her as best as she can. The problem becomes that Ruth is resistant to that though, and a lot of it is because of the deep grief that she is as her boyfriend was killed in a you know climbing accident, which is a big issue there. But I do feel the movie kind of loses its way a little bit, the middle to the end of the second act. And I think it just becomes disjointed as Ruth descends further into madness. I do kind of think that does work slightly. It's just I kind of wanted it to, I guess, stay focused a little bit more than what we got. I like the ending as well, as I said. But the final scene where we at first feels heartwarming, but then moves into the cliche and it just fell out of place for me. Taking this to the acting, I thought it was pretty solid across the board. Going back to what I've said a few times earlier, it is crazy that Lowell was as pregnant as she was during this movie as it brings even more realism to it. She really does seem like a soon-to-be mother for the first time who was dealing with horrible grief. It also is kind of reminiscent of something like Inside as well. Novak is really another person who gets a lot of screen time here. He does some things that make us not hate him, even though you're kind of on Ruth's side with the things that she says to him. She blames him for the crux of these killings, I would also give Hartley credit. I feel bad for her. She's just trying to do her job in a friendly manner. It just makes me think of times where I've been rude to people because of my mood for that day. And I feel kind of horrible thinking about it now that, you know, I'm kind of being level-headed. Shoutouts here to Gemma Whelan, who is Len, and Katie Dickey, who is Ella. Both of them I know from Game of Thrones, as well as I thought Davis, Skinner, Mike Wozniak, and Tom Meaton. We're also pretty good here to round out what was needed. I also have to give a shout out to Della Moon Sana, as she is the adorable baby that is in the movie, who is the actual daughter of Lowell as well, as she was in this movie 10 days after her birth. To shift this over to the effects, I thought they were all done practically from what I could tell, and I thought that the blood and the wounds that we get during the murder scenes were good. It wouldn't surprise me as there's a scene near the end of this movie as it looks like a legit medical procedure, but I don't want to spoil what that procedure is. The cinematography I thought was also well done and does add to some of the scenes to, you know, the feel of madness that Ruth is descending into. Playing along with that would be the soundtrack. It didn't necessarily stand out to me, but near the middle of the movie, there's a scene where I could feel it. It made me quite anxious and uncomfortable, which I thought worked well there. I would say that overall, the soundtrack worked for what was needed and really helped to enhance the feel of the scenes at different times. And that's all I can really ask for. It just didn't really stand out as one that I will, you know, come back to regularly. Now, with that said, for the final time here, I'm really going to commend Lowell once again for all that she did with this movie. I think there's an interesting story here, and the backstory works nicely. I do feel there are some minor plot holes that are problematic, but nothing that completely ruins this. 
the effects look good and the acting is solid in support of lull and the soundtrack fits for what was needed i did have my interest wane a bit later in the movie but not enough for me to be bored and it pulls me back in before it ends i would say that my rating is above average on this movie for sure and then a few other things to bring up before i move into spoilers is there is a movie that is being shown in black and white which is called crime without passion from 1934 I'm assuming this is because it's probably in public domain, but the female characters in that are known as the Furies, which does make a whole lot of sense that we have this scorned woman here who is acting out and getting back at people that she feels are guilty of something. So what I'm going to do is give my rating here as a 7.5 out of 10. I'm going to move in boiler section, but I'm going to go ahead and as always, as I said earlier, we'll have it timestamped so you can skip ahead, but that spoiler section will start now. And the spoilers that I really wanted to just bring up here is the fact that these murders are being done because of the father of Ruth's child was killed in an accident because it looks like their rope was about to break or there was too much weight. And what ends up happening is they have to cut his and he falls to his death. Now, all of these people are people that were on that climb together with Tom being the guy who was in charge of that. And she blames him as well as the rest of them for his death. There's an interesting conversation, though, later in the movie where Tom is telling Ruth that the two of them were having issues and that their relationship was struggling. And it almost seems like he was about to leave her. And the day that he died was the day that she found out she was pregnant. I don't know if that would have kept them together or not. But due to the hormones that are in her body are messing with her mind, driving her temporary insane... So she's going around and killing these people, which is making her feel better. Now, interesting enough, the medical procedure that I was hinting at earlier is that she had to have a C-section as the baby came a little bit early. Now, the midwife kept telling her that she was going to have these thoughts that might not be her own. And what is interesting about this is the fact that after her baby is born, she can't hear it anymore. So it is legitimately something inside of her is telling her to do these things, not actually the baby, which, of course, we probably already knew that. But I just think it's an interesting thing to actually show that at the end. I don't, some people might not like, you know, having their hand held there. And I don't really feel like that's what they're doing. I just feel like it's showing that everything that has been told to her this whole time, she's just been resistant of it. And I think she also partially wanted to punish these people to make herself feel better as well. Now, that's all I really wanted to go over with this movie. What I'm going to do is send you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. What a drag it is getting old Kids are different today I hear every mother say Mother needs something today to calm her down And though she's not really ill There's a little yellow pill She goes running for the shelter of her mother's there's a welfare and it helps her on her way Gets her through her busy day Things are different today I hear every mother say Cooking fresh food for her husband's just a drag So she buys an instant cake And she buys a frozen steak And goes running for the shelter of her mother's little helper through her busy day Doctor, please Some more of these Outside the 
I want to go ahead and thank you for listening to Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. This has been episode 15, and to just close everything out, if you would like to read any of the written reviews for anything that you've heard on this episode or any of my previous episodes, you can do that at Reviews of the Dead, and that's horrorreview.webnode.com. I'll have the link in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with me directly, you can do so via email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. On Facebook, I'm David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, it is Buckeye from Mish, all one word. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. On the Flick Chat app, you can join that group at Journey with a Cinephile. And what I'm thinking for the next episode is I'm going to have. One of the featured reviews be the new Jeremy Gardner film of After Midnight, as I've actually already saw that with the old lady, and I'm just in the process of doing my written review and you know getting everything recorded and getting that going. And then I think since what I'm going to go ahead and do is the other featured review on that is going to be another one from a black director, is I believe I found a copy of the movie Abby, which is my plan to be the second featured review there. Other than that, I'm not really necessarily sure what I have planned for March, but I think I might do a St. Paddy's Day episode where I'm going to do one of the Leprechaun films there. And then aside from that, I think it's going to be, for the most part going forward until something kind of strikes me, I think I'm going to start doing what I'm going to dub the Centennial Club, as I'm going to have a film from 1920 as well as, you know, a 2020 film to kind of just, you know, do something 100 years apart from each other. And I think I'm going to end up doing, if I can watch enough of them do an episode at the end of the year where I recap my favorite films from 1920 as well. I will keep you posted on that. But once again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great day in whatever you're doing. And this is David Garrett Jr. signing off. <laughs>